Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the diversity and role of invertebrate life on this planet. You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Today's Pod the Lab topic is corals. So everyone, you will have seen um, John's lecture online and again this is an opportunity to have a bit of a chat and ask some questions um anything around yeah corals coral biology um coral preservation and conservation is great uh jesse is also going to get involved here in this chat um jesse's doing her phd on coral biology and has worked on reefs all over the world right jess maria yep yep so between us all, I, I'm pretty sure, John, there's probably a, a reef in the world you haven't been to. Uh, yeah, I haven't been anywhere in the Red Sea. Yeah, or or, uh, or really the Coral Triangle. Southeast Asia is still, that's a pretty big one. On the bucket list, hey? Yeah. Did you want to um, tell the students a bit about your background um, so they know, you know all the, the different things that you've done through your career to get to this point in your expertise uh yeah sure um so i went through monash university i did a bachelor of science and then didn't really know if i wanted to do anything beyond that ended up doing a graduate diploma went into a master's on shark reproduction in aquaria and i upgraded that into a phd so my path to research was a little bit uh it wasn't so planned out initially um, but yeah, so I started out developing assisted reproductive technologies in sharks and stingrays. So that was, you know, semen collection, cryopreservation, ultrasound, hormone monitoring, that kind of thing. Um, so that was with Melbourne Aquarium, Underwater World in Queensland, did some work up here at Sydney and Manly when Manly was still around. And then um, was also affiliated with the Australian Frozen Zoo in Melbourne. And so through that was doing a lot of you know biobanking work, and then um, I did a postdoc in Louisiana, and the person I worked with there was a colleague of of Mary Hagedorn, and so years later when she was looking for a postdoc, uh, she came looking for me, I guess, because she'd heard nice things, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go on to a postdoc. So I spent the last five years in Hawaii working with coral and applying some of the stuff that I learned previously in coral and then learning a whole heap about coral as well because my background was not with corals or invertebrates at all. So, uh, so that was a pretty steep learning curve. But, yeah, so for the last – up until December last year, I was in Hawaii doing – developing cryobiology techniques for corals and doing biobanking on different reefs around the world. And now I'm back here in Australia or I'm at Taronga and soon UNSW – and we're setting up a program here for cryopreservation and biobanking of corals from the Great Barrier Reef. And so that's part of the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program, which is a, an Australian federally, federal government-funded program that's looking at a whole bunch of different potential interventions that could be used to mitigate um, effects on the reef. Um, and so, yeah, so our Cryo program is a part of that, and it's a really well integrated program. There's a lot of integration across the different interventions and the different research programs, 
and a lot of work with traditional owners and things like that. So it's a really nice program to be part of. So we're going to be building that over the next over the next few years and moving to high throughput and uh, cryopreservation at scale so that we can actually um, feed that into the work that people are doing for restoration and, uh, and, and that sort of thing on the reef. Wow. What, what do you mean by there at scale? Yeah, so a lot of stuff, and especially cryo, traditionally it's done as kind of an academic exercise. You know, there's only a few places that it's utilised. So dairy industry is the big one. Um, human IVF, it's used extensively. So those are kind of the big, the big things. Outside of that, research, scientific research. So it's used to manage stock centers for mice and zebra fish and things like that. But in the aquatic world, um, you know, cryopreservation of fish sperm was developed around the same time as, as it was for bulls. And while bulls, bull semen is like a, a multi-million dollar global industry, fish, it's still very much stuck in the research development phase and so uh, it's very easy to get stuck in that phase and so uh, what we're trying to do with this is actually take that cryopreservation we can do at a relatively small scale and move it up utilize some of that those systems that people use for dairy industries for human cell culture systems and, and IVF and things like that so that we can freeze enough coral that we can actually use it meaningfully um, and so, you know, there's no point being able to freeze a few things at a bench top in a lab. You know, we need to be able to do that at a large scale, large enough to have an impact. But uh, I think the difference here with this program and being integrated into, into RAP is that there is that integration into all of those other programs, because a lot of the, the research that happens in cryo, it's just somebody, you know, people developing tools in a lab, but then it's that connection to the application that's often missing, that translational step. Um, and so this is kind of because we're integrated with all these different programs that that kind of translational step is already there. There's already a pathway to move cryopreservation through. So hopefully we'll be able to actually have an impact with it over the next few years. John, I actually, I had a question about that. Um, I was really fascinated in your slides with the, the cryopreservation setup. And I was wondering yeah. if you this is the kind of thing that could eventually be scaled up to be a common technique for researchers. So all these researchers going out to other reefs, would you be able to send them out with a cryopreservation kit? Is there a world that this could be accessible and affordable? Yeah, so so something like the sperm cryo kit. So that, that kit that we use, I'm going to go and test a few now because we're getting ready for spawning in another couple of months. But um, that, that system, it's 3D printed. It uses parts that are all kind of off the shelf or, or, or 3D printed. And we've made those 3D print designs available so anybody can go and download them and print them and, and all that. But um, So three things like the Coral Restoration Consortium Cryopreservation and Biobanking Working Group, we're developing, and, and through some work with Smithsonian and things like that, we're developing some of these training tools so that we can actually teach people how to use those kits. So, yeah, in theory, those kits can be sent out to people. They can go through those training systems. They can apply the sperm cryopreservation locally on their own reefs. Um, so that's kind of the big push for that for that one. Um, for some of the other technologies, they're still very early in the development and they're still very tied to high-end equipment. 
And so whether or not we can move to a system where it's possible to freeze or develop and freeze that stuff in the field and then bring it back to a central um, a central lab location. So maybe you have hubs, research hubs in different parts, different reefs around the world, different regions, and then you can be working on those reefs, freezing those samples when they're available, but then bringing them back to that common research point where you can recover them, grow them out and things like that. Very cool. Thank you. Guys, have we got any questions um, from the students? Uh, keep in mind that there's generally some coral-related questions on the prac exam and the final exam, so it's a good opportunity to to get some information <laughs> in yeah, a podcast you can catch up on at any time. Anyone want to ask anything about the biology of corals? John, in the uh, in the lecture, we... Oh, hang on, Jed. Yep, go for it. Hello. So you talked about in your lecture uh, in preserving juvenile corals, um, needing to use a laser to heat them up mm -hmm. very rapidly. Uh, can you yep. talk a little bit more about that and why you need to use the laser? Yeah, okay. So when you cool cells and they form ice, they actually the ice actually forms and crystallizes through a specific temperature range. It's the sub-zero temperature range, right? So it's about minus 20 through to about minus 150 is when ice crystals are forming. And so when you cool samples down, they pass through that crystal formation phase. But when you warm them up, they actually pass back through that phase again. So you can form ice on the way down to minus 196, but you can also form it on the way back up to room temp. And so um, typically what happens is when you freeze, even when you vitrify and you see no obvious um, ice crystals, you still get ice crystal nuclei. And so what happens then is during the warming, those ice crystal nuclei can can crystallize, nucleate, and form ice crystals that kill. So what the, the general rule of thumb is that the warming rate needs to be an order of magnitude higher than the cooling rate. That's just kind of a general rule of thumb because that means that you can outrun that ice crystal formation on the way back out. So... In the case of vitrification, you're already cooling at tens of thousands of degrees per minute. And just because, just by nature of the fact that you're going from room temperature to minus 196 in a few seconds. Um, so there's, there's kind of limited ways that you can actually get the warming rate any faster. So normally, if you just pull it out, you stick it into some warm water, that's a convective cooling rate, and that'll get you tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of degrees. But typically, you'll see ice form. And when you've got a complex structure or a large structure like an embryo or an oocyte or a, or a lava, you know that's that. It's there's quite a big difference in the heating, in the warming rate between the outside of the droplet and the center of that sample. So. This is a technology that was developed by um, some researchers in the US. It was actually the guy who's, I guess he's seen as kind of the, the grandfather of cryobiology, a physics professor working with him who developed the technology. And basically, the laser warming is, is essentially one of the only ways that you can warm a sample at that rate to actually outrun the, um, the, the ice crystal formation during during warming. And so the the original technology was developed using India ink as just a, a straight up black black body infrared energy absorber. 
so just purely absorbing energy and, and radiating it. The gold nanoparticles that we use now, um, that was pioneered by some guys at University of Minnesota, and they essentially those gold nanoparticles are nanorods that are with the plasmon resonance frequency of the surface of those nanoparticles is tuned to the 1064 nanometer wavelength of the infrared laser if you yeah so so that's essentially how how they work so that's that's kind of another level up but that's that's why we need to use that that technology essentially nice john one of the pieces of assessment that the students have to do is to write like a, a SciComm article communicating the biology of an invertebrate and putting it in you know context of something that people really need to know about um about that invertebrate if there was anything you had to tell the public about corals um and their biology in terms of Cryopreservation. preservation what what would you tell the general public they they had to know <laughs> gee i don't know i mean when we talk we generally talk more about the techniques and technologies and the need for cryopreservation rather than the biology specifically um i'm not really sure what i would say to that actually um <laughs> Are there are there any challenges that you have to overcome with corals related to how they spawn that are more challenging because yeah, okay. you talk about humans okay. and cows and all of that? Yeah. So I guess okay, that that's that's a good one. For um so the primary sort of sample type that we freeze is, is coral sperm. And corals only spawn for very short windows of time each year. So their spawning period is tied to lunar cycles and I think to a lesser extent temperature, water temperature. But they're certainly governed by the lunar cycles. And so most species will be, or a lot of species spawn during the full moon in spring and summer. And then there's other groups that spawn during the new moon in, in spring and summer and then others again that, that spawn during the full moon in autumn. Um, but if you need to freeze sperm, then you need to know when you can actually get sperm. And because the corals can only spawn for a few nights of the year, that can be a real challenge. And so one of the things that we have to do whenever you're working with a new species is to actually work out when it spawns. And you can do that by, by looking at gamete development inside the tissues with just histology or, or um, gross dissection. Um, and then essentially you just need to get corals, stick them in a bucket and watch them. And that can be very, very tedious waiting for them to spawn. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, the real limiting factor to applying cryopreservation in, in coral sperm. And it's one of the reasons why we're developing all of these other technologies to kind of work outside of that window. So that's the big one is knowing the reproductive period and spawning time and even spawning time. Some, some will go. Prior to sunset, so the fungia or mushroom corals in Hawaii will spawn at four o'clock in the afternoon. And then there are others, you know, the parietes and things like that that are going at two or three in the morning. Or even there were some uh, postal operas that were going at, at six in the morning as the sun was rising. So it's all, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot there in terms of the reproductive period and cycle and spawning times that you need to pin down in order to be able to work with coral sperm. That's a long night from sunset to sunrise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You try to work with, with species that are at one end of that 
Um, Hannah, you got your hand up for a question. Thanks. Jump in. Yeah, um, everything that I've heard about coral reefs and climate change is like really, really depressing. Um, I forget the statistics, but from memory, it indicates that they have they have a great chance of being wiped out. Um, if this is true, is the aim of all of these efforts to breed, like selectively breed corals that can withstand higher temperatures or have you got a more optimistic view that maybe we can mitigate climate change and potentially reverse it and then one day regenerate these ecosystems with the corals that have been cryopreserved? Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the trajectories and the expectation is that annual bleaching is going to be occurring before the end of the, the century. So it's, and, and this is, even if every country in the world suddenly said, right, that's it, no more carbon, we're still kind of locked on a path that's going to have significant impacts on coral. So coral reefs are definitely under threat over the coming decades. So a lot of what this work is aimed at is about getting coral reefs through that period because eventually, you know, carbon use is going to come down, um, the environment will stabilise and, the, you know, corals will be able to find a, a niche again to exist. But we have to have corals to put back, you know, to, to have there at that once we get to that stable point. And so a lot of the work that's happening now is around getting corals to that point. And that's through, there's a couple of things. There's developing um, uh, resistant, heat resistant or heat tolerant strains, so the assisted evolution kind of work. Um, that's kind of developing symbionts that have got higher thermal tolerances, corals that have got higher thermal tolerances. Um the cryopreservation and biobanking work is about preserving genetic diversity because once a reef bleaches, you lose all the corals on that reef, you know, you lose diversity. You want to have as much genetic diversity as possible to work with later on when you're trying to do this restoration work. Um, but then there's also a lot of work on, you know, rehabilitating reefs that have been damaged because if we can keep propping reefs up, I guess, you know, for a while, keep them keep them ticking along, then then as things stabilise, there will still be something there to keep surviving. So it's certainly not a lost cause. But yeah, reefs are in a in a definitely in a difficult situation at the moment. And because they're such an important ecosystem, it's important that we do what we can to try and keep them sort of going over the next next decade. I have a little follow-up question to that, and this may actually be for Tracy and John, um, but when you say, what can we do to keep them going, that I think there's a misdemeanor, mm -hmm. there's so much information going around on, you know, oh, be mindful of what sunscreen you wear or use less plastic, things like that. It can be hard to know mm -hmm. how we can help. So maybe to each of you, what is one thing you would say that we each can do at an individual level to have an impact? Big do question. You uh, look, anything we can do to reduce our carbon contribution to the environment helps every every little bit helps. We collectively created the problem, so that enough is a reason to show that we can collectively undo the problem. Um, and then also when we're on reefs, being very mindful of the impact we have, and the same in any environment that you're that you're in. Um, you're enjoying it because it's in a, a, a great state, so you want to leave it that way 
when you want to come back, when someone else wants to go there, when you want to take the kids there, when you want to, you know, enjoy it in the future. Um, if you're enjoying it, then then make sure you, you leave it that way, which is for corals in particular, particularly while we've got these cumulative stresses like heat stress events, increased nutrients, the last thing you want to be doing is getting on a reef and breaking coral. So um, that's a really mm. good thing people can do on the reef is just hold back, keep your fins away, don't break them. We know that corals that are under heat stress that are damaged, the, the regrowth of that tissue is slower. Um, so that's an immediate impact you can have um, on that reef. John? Yeah, I agree. Anything you can do to reduce your own carbon footprint, your own personal, you know, using less plastic, using less, driving less if you can, you know, all those sorts of things that, that and using less energy around the home, using less water, all those things that sort of help more broadly with the environment will, will help, you know, in the long term as well. Um, Ruby? Hi. Um, I was just wondering in terms of possible exam questions, um, how <laughs> in-depth will our uh, response need to be surrounding the process of cryo, um, like um, sperms, tissues, larvae? That's what uh, so, so overall, you can have a look at the um, previous exam questions. Uh, I'll put some on the Moodle page in the coming weeks. Um, but for any of these lectures and the guest lectures, um, you have the option of um, selective selecting which questions you want to answer, and uh, there's a time frame in which to do it. So, I mean, the most important thing I can say about writing an exam answer is making sure it's right rather than more information. So, um, you know, look understanding the biology of corals and how it relates to, to cryopreservation, if that's one of the, the things you want to discuss in one of those answers, then just understanding things like, you know, what's what, um, how corals spawn, what biological processes are, and how that can, you know, influence things like conservation practices. Awesome. Thank you. So, how much genetic diversity do you need to mitigate or at least circumnavigate like a bottleneck effect in theory during a process of regeneration, do you think? Is there a way to tell or is it just sort of like a collect as much as we can and then just hope that it is enough? Yeah, that's that's a good question. That's a that's one that we kind of um because you need to have a collection strategy, right? Um, and so the work that's been done suggests that if you can collect 30 individuals from a population, you will call, you will have 95% of the genetic diversity of that population. That's kind of the goal, you know, but then it's about how granular you need to go, you know, is that of a, of, of a species? So is that 30 individuals in, you know, a population, in a reef, in, you know, a region? So it's kind of, and, and that sort of depends on the natural diversity of the uh, of the region. So if you collect 30 individuals in the Florida reef tract, or Cropper or Palmata, there's probably only 30 individuals there. So you know that's the whole that's the whole thing. Whereas on the on the Great Barrier Reef, if you get a, a species like Hyacinthus or something like that that's distributed across the whole length of the or, or Millipora or, or Tenuous that's across the full length of the GBR then, you know, you need to be getting your 30 individuals from different regions 
and potentially different, you know, near shore, offshore, different depths, that kind of thing, if you want to really represent. So there's genetic diversity and there's also phenotypic diversity there. Um, but yeah, so the, I mean, our, our broad target is 30 individuals from a reef or region, but, but that obviously um, comes down to how those collections are prioritised uh, as to... Sorry, go on. Yeah, so that, that's kind of, that's the general goal, you know, target. I see. Thank you. The lecture that I gave, which covered uh, reproduction in corals a bit and mm. fragmentation in particular, how when a coral is broken, new colonies can grow from those broken parts. Uh, that ability of corals to grow new individuals from a piece of a, another, is there a way you can use that in preservation? Yeah, um, so that's that's a big part of coral restoration. You know the fragmentation process because they you can people will go out and take a piece of coral and turn it into a hundred pieces of coral and grow a hundred corals to put back out. So you can build a reef fairly quickly, um, and we've worked on that a little bit for finding ways to cryopreserve coral fragments. That for us would be kind of the ultimate because it means that you're not tied to that reproductive period. So you could go out at any time of year or any time that the corals aren't stressed through warming and uh, and collect pieces of, of coral and, and make microfragments or, or smaller and, and freeze those. So that's definitely something. I, and I mentioned in the, in the lecture that we've done some proof of concept with, um, with uh, nanofragments or single polyps microfragment um but yeah so that that's something that's an ongoing area of research for cryo and looking at being able to freeze larger pieces as well but there's there's a lot of technological challenges we're working with different collaborators around the world nice. in that one cool a big thank you to john for coming in today and for the lecture and having a chat to us all thank you john no worries Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.